theologian will have on their shelves that they use. This is um, first-rate, uh, uh, um, top, second-to-none type biblical scholarship material. You're actually seeing a very clear photograph of what's been found. Now, the only drawback to the books are they're dated. They're about 30 years old and uh, a little over 30, maybe 35 years old, I think, is the last edition. And there have been some archaeological finds since then, so they're not as complete. They're, they come in a two-volume set. But um, there, show and tell. Um, <clears throat> let's uh, get to the lesson. I would like to think that perhaps today we can make it through Ezra and Nehemiah, but I may be an optimist. Um, I am, after all, returning fresh from uh, the Texas Tech A&M football game, which... <laughs> For those of us who went to Texas Tech, gives us optimism because we never dreamed we could pull that off, okay? Um, uh, um, we, we, well, that's another story. Okay, Philip, this doesn't seem to want to move at all. Hello? Is uh, there any reason why this doesn't move? I'll just move it with my finger. It's okay. Um, what? Oh, I was going to... Try to what are you do? Hey, don't you have to like reboot it after that? No, not with this. Oh, I did it again. Yeah, we are technological wizards up here. <laughs> if uh, speaking of wizards, who's ever heard of the Wizard of Oz? Okay. okay. See if it now. Um, if you've heard of the Wizard of Oz, no, nah, it's all right. I've got it. Uh, uh, Oz is the Hebrew word for strength. So we're, uh, he's supposed to be a strong wizard. Um, that's where that came from. See, it's a freebie. Okay, um, uh, get that out of there, and let's see if this works. Um, okay, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, let's talk about them. First of all, let's try and put them in some type of a time frame. Let's understand where we are time-wise. The Babylonian exile was in around 587, 586 B.C., now, this is when Judah, the bottom two tribes of Israel, got taken off into Babylonian captivity. You'll recall, over a hundred years earlier, the northern ten tribes of Israel were conquered. They weren't taken to any special place where they just came back later. They were decimated. Those northern ten tribes were wiped out. In fact, it's, caused, uh, 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 it's been a source of um, food for various people to write about over the years of what happened to the lost ten tribes of Israel. You know, and where did they go? Well, they went all over the place. They were decimated. They were wiped out, never to be returned. A number of those people in Israel during that first big wipeout of the ten tribes did filter down to Judah and escape uh, 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 being deported and, and lived in and around Jerusalem and the Judean area. So you have some representation of those people in the, Ju in the Judah history. But Judah itself, in 587, 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he conquers Judah, and he takes Jehoiakim the king off to Babylon, and he takes with him the intellectual and the spiritual leaders of the people. If you had uh, um, much training, if you had much knowledge, if you had much wealth, if you had much uh, uh, spiritual influence or educational influence, those are the ones that were taken off and deported so they couldn't start rebellion later on against the conquering uh, uh, Babylonians. Um, it was a standard thing to do. That happens in about 587, 586 B.C., and then just within about uh, 40 years or so, 
Babylon itself was conquered by uh, the Persians, sometimes called the Medes and the Persians, because the Persians had conquered the Medes as well. But uh, uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, which is a little bit more Iran, if uh, Babylon is Iraq, um, comes and conquers uh, uh, Babylon in 539 B.C. Now bear with me here. Let's put this into a little more time frame. Alexander the Great, who sort of conquers the world with Greek influence, happens in 331 B.C. So somewhere in those 200 years, we've got a gap where the world's really being ruled, at this point at least, by the Persian influence uh, um, out of Babylon and Persia. Uh, it is during this time period, 531 to 450 B.C., a little over 120 years or so before Alexander the Great. It is during this time period that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah take place. Now when I say the books take place, what do I mean? These are history books in the Bible. They relate the history of what's happening during this time period. And so if, as we look at them, we need to understand two things. First of all, who were they? Ezra was a, a priest... He was a spiritual and educational leader of the people. He was in Babylon at the time. He was a scholar of the law of Moses. He was a teacher. It's interesting, some of our best understanding of what the Jews had come from documents that happened out of Babylon. Because during this Judaic deportation, this 70 years when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, the Jewish culture itself thrived. And I'll get into that in a little more detail later. But just remember that Ezra is a priest. Nehemiah was originally a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who became a, a, a king of Persia in the 400s, the mid-400s. And then Artaxerxes sends him back to Jerusalem to be a governor there in the Israel area. Okay, now that's all freebies. Where did we get the title Nehemiah from? Or Ezra. If you open your Bibles, let's go through. We're, first book we're going to find is Genesis, and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Are our two for today, man. If you made it through all of that. I've been doing this for 40 years and I start getting mixed up. Um, if you look at Ezra, now we've, I've got an NIV study Bible here, which is what a lot of you have. And let me throw it up here and let's make sure we're all on the same page. If I look, it's got some introduction material and it says Ezra there at the introduction. You all see that? Then if we turn to the actual book itself, the book starts right here with Cyrus helps the exiles to return. Ezra 1 verse 1. Can you all see where I'm pointing? Um, that little title, Cyrus helps the exiles to return, it's not in the original. We all know that, don't we? That's just one of the study aids that the NIV study Bible puts in there to help you orient what's there. Well, do you know what else was not in the original? Ezra. The original didn't have a title, Ezra. And so 
um, the, the NIV doesn't put a title on it. If you want to find the Ezra title, you go to the introduction material, not to the Bible text itself, because the Bible text does not have the title Ezra, nor does Nehemiah have the title Nehemiah. So why do our Bibles have them and where did they come from? That's the first question I want us to address uh, uh, as we look at these books. The early Bibles combined both Ezra and Nehemiah. They were both the same book in the earliest... In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, they were the same book up till about 1400 A.D. Um, in the copies we have of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, similarly, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, abbreviated LXX, um, uh, the same book. It's, it's uh, all one and the same. If you look at Josephus, Josephus was a Jewish historian from the first century A.D. He uh, references only to the book of Ezra, not to Nehemiah, probably because in his mind and practice they were the same as well. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, don't, uh, they only have found in the Dead Sea Scrolls three fragments uh, from this book, but they're all from the book of Ezra as well. So there's nothing to indicate knowledge there. There was a Christian church father named Origen who lived in the late 180s through about 250-something A.D. And Origen wrote a lot about the Old Testament. And Origen is, is uh, one of the first people to distinguish the books that we call Ezra and Nehemiah as two separate books. But even Origen calls them first and second Ezra, um, I think technically he was writing in Greek, and it's Esdras, E-S-D-R-A-S, which is the Greek of Ezra. Um, uh, so Origen does so in the 200s. Uh, in addition to Origen, if you skip forward about 150 years and get up to around 400, Jerome was translating the Bible into Latin. And we call that the Vulgate. That's what the Catholic Church wound up using and still uses uh, uh, for its... Uh, uh, consideration. And, and Jerome, when he's translating it, translated uh, uh, the Bible, he gives it a title for Nehemiah as Liber Secundus Esdrai. Now, y'all are not necessarily Latin scholars. Maybe. Um, Liber. Book. Yeah, we get library from it, right? So we have book. Second, you are Latin scholars. Ezra. So he doesn't advance the ball much, but uh, uh, he also calls Nehemiah uh, book, the second book of Ezra, in essence. Now, if you go forward to Wycliffe, who was one of the first English Bible translators, in 1382, his edition appears. He's calling it first and second Ezra. Now, I, I, to me, this is just fascinating. It may bore you to tears, but I want, I'm trying to answer the question, where did that name Nehemiah come from for that book of Nehemiah? Because if you and I are living for the first 1,360, 1, 80 years of Christendom, we're not going to see it. Um, let's keep going. Maybe. My computer is not happy today. Coverdale. Miles Coverdale. Uh, Miles Coverdale did an English version of the Bible that most people date to 1535. 
Uh, an English version had been tried a little earlier by William Tyndale. William Tyndale was killed for trying to translate the Bible into English because that was viewed as heresy and something that was wrong. Uh, Miles Coverdale uh, uh, covered his tracks on doing it a few years later by dedicating the book to Henry VIII. Henry VIII being the British king who was mad at uh, the Pope because he wanted to be able to marry and divorce and behead at will. And uh, the Pope had a problem with that, and so uh, Henry VIII decided to start his own Church of England and become the head of it. And uh, uh, to the extent Miles Coverdale dedicated his Bible to, uh, 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 well, we get into this when we do church history literacy, if we go that way. Anyway, Coverdale translates the Bible, and his is wonderful, the English translation, because it also shows you how far English has come. Uh, when Coverdale translates the Bible, es Ezra is called the first book of Esdras. Uh, for those who may be listening to this, book back then was spelled B-O-K-E. So he has the first book of Esdras. And then for Nehemiah, he has the second book of Esdras, otherwise with a Y, called the book of Nehemiah. And that's the first time in English we see it coming. Nehemiah is not being you, this was not an original creation of Miles Coverdale. Uh, Martin Luther had already translated the Bible into German. And when Martin Luther translated the Bible, he gave Ezra the title of Ezra, and he gave Nehemiah the title of Nehemiah. And the rest, as we say, is history, because uh, we, uh, in the Protestant movement, who produce Bibles like the NIV, um, have since followed Martin Luther and uh, Miles Coverdale, and we have the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So that's where they come from. Score 92 on that test. Um, who wrote these books? Uh, um, that's a fascinating question. And what I really like about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, unlike, for example, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Kings even, Samuel even, well, not so much kings, but especially Samuel. We're pretty close to history for us when we start hitting Ezra and Nehemiah. What I mean by history, we're close to areas where there are good written documentation of history outside of what we have in the Bible. We can go back and we can find all of these kings. We can find the independent records. We have as many chronicles from Babylonia as we have of almost any other ancient document. The Babylonian Empire kept great records. And so when we start looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, we're not reaching so far back into history that there's a lot of speculation as to what went on or a lot of trusting faith as to what went on. Rather, we're looking at a time where we can really look at the credibility of the Bible in what it says because there's accurate history to measure it by. And it makes it a fascinating book, two fascinating books to look at. Um, we don't know who wrote them. We do know, and, and I think that our translators are correct, in treating Ezra and Nehemiah as separate books. There are lots of reasons uh, espoused for that, but the one that makes the most common sense to me is the second chapter of Ezra is duplicated almost word for word in most of the seventh chapter of Nehemiah. And if one guy's writing one book or one compiler's compiling one book, you don't see him repeating all of that when they got to do each thing by the stroke of a pen. They can't just merge, click, copy, 
you know, and do the word processing stuff we can do. We might say, hey, let's bring in the whole thing. You know, what the heck? It's just a button. You know, for them, tedium and, and oh, great, I got to go buy another scroll. Well, I got to make those, and that takes 30 years. And, you know, I, you don't just sit there and recopy word for word something that you've already put in the book earlier. So it makes sense that we're dealing with two separate books. When you read the book of Ezra, there are sections in the seventh chapter going through the eighth and a section in the ninth chapter where Ezra is speaking in the first person. Um, let me, uh, let, let's put it on the screen so we can see it uh, um, and understand it. We'll go to like Ezra 7.27 to start out. And if you, you write in your Bible, then circle the I or something because that's uh, significant to this. Ezra 7.27. Look at this. Uh, We've got a zoom, zoom. Zoom, a zoom. Praise be to the Lord... The God of, what's that say? Yeah, it doesn't say the God of the fathers, of, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, you know, David, the God of, like we see throughout most of the other Old Testament. At this point, all of a sudden, in the Old Testament, we see praise be, and it's not quoting someone, this is the actual book, himself, the writer himself talking here. The writer himself says, praise be to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who's put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me. Because the hand of Yahweh my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And these are the family heads and those registered with them who came with me from Babylon. These are the people that came with me. And, and this goes on and on for several chapters. So you see what I'm talking about here by first person? Which lets you know either Ezra wrote the entire book or at least a good portion of this book was taken from memoirs that Ezra kept. Remember, as I'll show you later, Ezra is a scholar. He's a teacher. He's got a copy of the Law of Moses. That's going to be apparent to us as well, the Book of Moses or Books of Moses. And so it's not surprising that he would keep his own journals and he would keep his own writings. Um, one of my major professors uh, uh, in college who, uh, uh, in, uh, who taught uh, Old Testament, my Old Testament professor, and that was his, he was also my Hebrew professor, uh, Clyde Miller. Uh, professor Miller was of the opinion that Ezra was probably one of the main compilers of the Old Testament. Because with Ezra, we see for the first time a historical Jewish figure who is a priest, a prophet of God, whom God's speaking with, who's able to write the words of God, but also has a good grasp, not only of all of Israel's history, but obviously has possession of books of the law and books of Moses. And so we see here a glimpse into maybe one of the individuals who's responsible for putting the Old Testament together as we have it under God's oversight. Um, uh, it's the first time in the Bible we start reading works very clearly, I, me, I, me, unless you count Psalms of David and things like that for which there are other issues and questions that we'll look at later. But um, that's what we have with Ezra. Now, Nehemiah, the other book, same thing. If we flip to, uh, here, I'll go back. I just put it up there. Nehemiah, first person. Now, same thing. If we look at Nehemiah, for example, chapter 1, verse 1 just at the very start of the book. It says, The words of 
Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. See, this is something... When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Yahweh, um, uh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So we see in Ezra and Nehemiah both a good deal of first-person writing, which indicates to us likely authorship. Um, Now, both of them also have what we would call third-person text. In other words, there are times where it talks about Nehemiah in Nehemiah. There are times where it talks about Ezra in Ezra, as if it's not him talking. That doesn't mean he didn't write it. That doesn't mean he didn't compile it. But it may be an indication that there is another compiler uh, at work as well. Uh, It's not uncommon for people to write in the third person, uh, especially back then. But even now, it's a literary technique that's used. We haven't had a theological term de jure in a long time. I thought it was time to bring one back. So our theological term de jure, our term of the day, is a compiler. Theologians writing about the Old Testament and even the New will talk about a compiler. And when they talk about a compiler, they're talking about a person who takes various texts and combines them to make the text that we have today. Now, for some, for example, they would consider, and and I consider, Moses a compiler. If you look at the book of Genesis and you read it with an eye toward uh, uh, the way a lot of ancient texts were written, there is some good indication that the book of Genesis was actually put together from various texts um, that were already out there and already present. Uh, R.K. Harrison makes a good case for this in his introduction to Old Testament book that I've talked about in here before, but I footnote for anybody listening to this tape or something who who may want to say, where do you get that from? Uh, You can read about it more fully from the analysis that Harrison gives. But, But a compiler is someone who takes various materials and compiles them together to come up with the text that we have. So was Ezra, for example, a compiler as my uh, seminary professor uh, Clyde Miller believed where Esther, uh, Ezra was someone who took various parts of the Old Testament and put them together into what we have now. Um, was there a compiler for Ezra and Nehemiah? Uh, we don't have definitive answers to that, uh, though obviously we have answers of faith that these are consistent and accurate uh, uh, understandings of what God wishes to communicate to us in His Word. When were these books written? Lots of opinions on this. Some people say as recently as 200 B.C. Um, I I don't agree with that, and not many scholars do, but there's one renegade scholar of of, of some merit. Uh, He's not what we would consider a conservative scholar. He's what we would consider a very liberal scholar who's quick to try and date everything as late as possible because it allows him to write off uh, various things that might disturb his lack of faith. Um, But we'll talk about that when we talk about prophecies. Because, see, there are a lot of liberal scholars who want the prophecies to be written after the events because it makes it a little more clearer on why they could have been so prophetically accurate. Those who say, no, it's okay, God may have been at work 
can go ahead and accept the fact that they may actually be prophecies written before the events happen. Um, but uh, 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 that's another issue. Most people see uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah written as close to being contemporaneous to the events as possible. And uh, uh, that's, that's where I land on the issue as well. Um, that would put Ezra somewhere around 440 B.C. I would put Nehemiah maybe 10 years later. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Uh, put Nehemiah about 430 B.C. That, folks, is really not that long ago. And if you think about it, that puts Nehemiah 100 years before Alexander the Great. That's, that's, that's not that long ago. Um, one last footnote here. Uh, oh, that's in your text. Uh, also, this is, these are books that have Aramaic in them. They're not totally written in Hebrew. Um, one last footnote on this, though, that's... that's I don't want to go there yet. Let's wait. One last footnote. These are the last books of the Bible that are written in history uh, of the Old Testament, I should say. Let me explain what I mean. We've been reading Old Testament history since the Garden of Eden, right? We've read through the events. We've read through um, the time of the judges. We've read through the time of the prophets. Uh, we've read through uh, the time of the kings. We've read through the division of the kingdoms. We've read through the decimation of the northern kingdom. We've read through the Babylonian captivity in the southern kingdom. Now we're going to read through this history and this return. And there is no more history in the Old Testament. It's quiet from then until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Gospels. And there is a 430-year period of silence in the Bible as far as history is concerned. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, you may be saying, yeah, well, we still got a whole lot to go for it being so silent. Yes, what we have left to cover goes back in history and fills in the times we've already studied and talked about. So as we read through Ezra and Nehemiah and finish those, we're basically finishing the timeline of Old Testament history that we've got that started with the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It ends with Ezra and Nehemiah in 430 B.C. And then the rest of the books that we look at fill in the, that timeline, but they all fall within the timeline that we've got. So we're coming up on the end of the timeline. Um, there's nothing in this PowerPoint. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom's gone. 587, 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. The intellectual and spiritual leaders are gone. King Jehoiakim is gone. There's nothing uh, incredible about any of this that we haven't already gone through. Uh, there is one thing I will add. During this time of captivity, when Jean King Jehoiakim is gone, we read about him being taken off into captivity in Kings and Chronicles. Uh, uh, we are in Chronicles anyway. We have, at this point, uh, uh, good records out of Babylon, as I've told you. Here is a stone that was dug up right outside uh, uh, the gates uh, there in the capital of Babylon, and it is uh, in the German Museum in Berlin, and that is uh, Babylonian script, if you will. Pritchard, my show-and-tell guy, uh, has the translation of this as well. This is uh, uh, orders from Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of uh, Babylon. These are the orders for food provisions for certain of his prisoners that he provides for. And he has a provision of 10 sela of oil to that uh, I, capital I, is also a J. They're interchangeable. Um, that's Jehoiakim, king of, anybody guess what Yahudu is? Judah. Judah. That's right. That's Babylonian for Judah. Y'all speak Babylonian. 
two and a half sela of oil to the sons of the king of Judah. Your Babylonian's getting better. Four sela to eight men from Judah. Yeah. So we, we find consistencies uh, uh, after consistency after consistency uh, uh, with this. And this is happening during the time period between what we last finished with Chronicles and what's starting here with Ezra and Nehemiah. So with that, um, I have just, ah, King Jehoiakim's gone. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that a lot of the Jews are adjusting and flourishing in exile. Sometimes we get the idea that the Jews were taken off into exile and, and uh, life was miserable for them. Uh, it was miserable, especially for the first generation, because they're having to start all over again. Uh, if, if we look in American history at equivalents, there are some we can draw, there are some we cannot. Um, uh, it, in, in American history, for example, um, we took in mass the American Indian people uh, when, we, uh, when Western civilization kind of took over the country. But, and, and, and they were sent to reservations. They were not incorporated or integrated into society very well. And if we think of the Jerusalem and the Jews in Babylonian captivity as the American Indians, that's not accurate because the, the Jews were actually incorporated. The whole goal behind deporting them was to try and integrate them into society so they could not, as a people again, in mass rebel. You dilute the genetic pool and make them no longer allegiant to each other, and they will be more allegiant to the conquering country. So um, um, we don't really have any... Well, I guess we sort of have some of that in our heritage because we've taken allowed lots of, of influx of people from other areas, but to equate it with either what we've done with the Indians or uh, by and large with the, the African uh, slaves that were brought over, um, that is not what happened to the Jews. Uh, uh, those are both examples where uh, we as, as, as Western civilized America uh, uh, ostracized and, and uh, uh, treated poorly and, and segregated instead of integrated and tried to bring in and incorporate. And it's obviously something that hopefully our generation and, and our children and the next generations will try and, and fix because it still causes trouble in our country and is still an issue um, um, uh, that, and, and a, a sin that needs to be uh, reconciled and, and dealt with. But that is not the way it was done in Babylon. Babylon, the integration happened immediately. So while the Jews are over there for this 70 years, they're starting to prosper. Man, they're going to the Babylonian schools. They're learning the irrigation. They're learning the farming system. They're learning the various things. But the, the children of Judah, there were certain ones of them that stayed together and kept a very tight Jewish community going. And that's why 70 years later, when the Jews were able to return to Jerusalem and to, to Judah, they did so complete a number of them with genealogies still intact, showing that they are pure Hebrews. If you think about Paul in Philippians, Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. That was a phrase meaning during the captivity, my family kept their genealogy records straight. We know we're Hebrews. We trace our genealogy back to Abraham, that type stuff. So um, a number of Jews uh, uh, were, 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 were still together as a people when King Cyrus, the Persian king, takes over Babylon 
And in the first year of his reign, he says, you know, I, I want to do things differently here. I'd like to send the people back that need to go back to their various places or that want to go back and let them restore their gods and let them restore their temples. And in fact, I'll help fund part of it. Cyrus's idea was to try and appease the people and keep the people happy by letting them be their own uh, uh, and, and, and letting it flourish uh, so that it wouldn't be a rebellious state. It would be a, a, a state of allegiance and appreciation to him for what he did. And that Cyrus did this in the Bible, we see, uh, uh, we can go back and read the texts of Cyrus and see that it's very consistent with how he treated other peoples as well. So Cyrus sends families back and he takes the inventory of goods taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and sends it back as well and says, take all of these things and go back with them. Um, the people come back. The people have some genealogies. These genealogies are extremely important to them because the folks who didn't keep good genealogies get set aside until a prophet can deal with the situation and verify whether or not they're truly Jews. It's very interesting when the Babylonian or when the exile is, is over and the Jews start returning, the law of Moses comes with them. We don't know what that law of Moses is because it just says the law of Moses. But the law of Moses typically today to a Jew is the Torah. It's going to be the first five books of the Old Testament. And I think that's probably what it was then. Um, uh, I base that on the fact that one of the first things they did is Ezra stood up and read the law to the people. And it took him from morning till noon, from daybreak till noon. And that's about how long it'd take to read through that stuff out loud. But uh, uh, he continues to read... And uh, uh, he takes the law of Moses with him. And Ezra uh, records, now Ezra himself's not there at the time, understand. But the book of Ezra records the historical event of the temple being rebuilt. Zerubbabel is the Jew that oversees the rebuilding of the temple. And, and uh, the temple had been destroyed, razed, burned to the ground uh, during the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. That temple gets rebuilt. And when it's rebuilt, it's, it's interesting the celebration occurs with singing, uh, singing of psalms. So it tells us that the people had psalms then. They had the book of psalms. They had some of the psalms. Maybe they had not all been compiled yet. But the psalms were very clearly there and being used for worship and celebration. Um, there were some enemies that did not want the temple rebuilt. They got what we lawyers call a TRO. as a temporary restraining order. And uh, they beseeched the powers that be and said, you know, they're rebuilding this temple. This is the first act of them breaking off and claiming they're an independent country. And this is just the way these Jews are. And you better tell them to cease and desist right now. We need a TRO issued to put a stop to this. Uh, the powers that be issued the TRO and said, time out. No more building until we check into it. It uh, uh, takes a while then before the temple is completed, but eventually it is. When the temple is completed, there's a big worship celebration that takes place. We need to know that the Holy of Holies does not contain the Ark of the Covenant. That's been lost now. Sometime in the Babylonian captivity, we don't have a record of it. Uh, a, a book called Maccabees in the middle of the Old Testament and New Testament, the Apocrypha, which we'll deal with when we get to it, um, uh, says that in the temple, there, I mean in the Holy of Holies, all they had was a table. Uh, they didn't have the Ark to go in there. They had uh, a lampstand and they had an incense burner. And that's all that they had returned that they could put in there. Um, the older ones who remembered the glories of King Solomon's temple cried and wept. It was a, a day of mourning for them. Uh, the Passover was celebrated. And these things happened in 516 B.C. 
They're recorded in the first part of the book of Ezra. Um, Ezra enters about 60 years after this, somewhere around 550 or so uh, B.C. And um, when Ezra enters, he enters, according to the, the Bible, it says, this is uh, 7, 6, and 7, 10, let's look at Ezra. Um, this is, this is a, I, I really, this, I like this. Understand, this is a fellow who's lived, was probably born and lived all of his life in Babylon. Okay? Ezra, um, uh, I'm at verse 10. Let me scoop back to verse 6. Ezra, this Ezra, you see? Right here. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. Now, let's just pause for a moment and see what this is saying because this is making a comment here. We're reading something that was written about 450 B.C., either written by uh, uh, or 440 B.C., either written by Ezra himself or written by someone else using Ezra's notes. And as early as 440 B.C., we're reading about a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. So the law of Moses was not some recent creation, or they'd have been calling it the, the law that wished it was according to Moses, um, which Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. It sees the Old Testament scriptures being used by Ezra as something that were inspired and given by Yahweh himself. Ezra, the people writing at this time, do not see scripture as merely a human creation. They see it as something given by Yahweh himself. So Ezra comes up from Babylon. He's a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which Yahweh the God of Israel had given. And um, if we look at verse 10, it again says something about Ezra here. Verse 10. That doesn't look like verse 10 to me. There. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of Yahweh and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. In Israel, they are talking about the people because he's from Babylon. It's not talking about the nation. I mean, the, the, the physical country. It's talking about the, the populated uh, idea of Israel, the people of Israel. And that's who Ezra is. And Ezra is sent to oversee the administration of the government, governors and the magistrates in the region. Um, uh, in Ezra chapter 8, uh, so that we've got some point to this and then I'm, uh, that, that you take home other than head knowledge, I want to talk about Ezra chapter 8, then we're going to recess this class and we'll start it again next Sunday um, uh, and we'll try to finish it. Ezra chapter 8, uh, uh, when we were going to Lubbock yesterday, my little sister Holly said, well, you're going to talk about Ezra chapter 8, aren't you? It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I said, well, I am now. And uh, um, Ezra chapter 8 is a wonderful story. What happens in Ezra chapter 8, Ezra says to the king, you know, it's real important I go back and rebuild the temple. I mean, the temple's been rebuilt, but it's real important that I go back and that I see to the people getting taught and all of the provision and everything. This is from God, and God puts it on the heart of the king to say, okay. And God puts it on the heart of the king to tell Ezra to go. So Ezra and his people, they all get ready to make this grand exodus and to go to, to uh, um, Israel. And do you know what problem they have? They get scared. They get scared about robbers and thieves and stuff. And Ezra says, well, you know, the really smart thing to do might be to the human to go ask the king. I mean, he's given us all this other stuff. I'm sure he'd send a few troops to protect us. 
But if we ask the king to send the troops to protect us, it takes away from our testimony that it's really God who wants us to go. And I told this king to send us, and God put it on his heart to send us. Can God truly be the God we say he is and not be able to keep us safe? Do we now have to rely on the king for safety when this is God's trip and God's mission? He says, so let's don't ask the king. Instead, let's just stop right now and don't go any further until we fast and pray. And the people stopped, and they fast and they pray for several days. And then they make the trip. And they make the trip successfully. There are not thieves, there are not robbers, they aren't beset upon by marauding tribes or anything else. And it's a wonderful lesson for us to just pause as we go into next week, and we've done a lot of the mechanics today. Next week we can get into a lot more substance. But I want you to think about it in terms of your life for just a moment. If, in fact, God is in control of your life, if, in fact, God has got His hand on where you're going, and it's God's leading, and it's God's direction, and it's God's movement, then don't you think that God is sufficient to see you there safely? If it's not God's movement, and it's not where God wants you to go, I implore you to turn around because you don't want to go there anyway. But if you're looking at a new job situation and you think, well, I, I wonder if I'll get this. I have a fellow who emailed me and said, I'm tired of being a lawyer. I want to go to seminary. I want to be a preacher. I don't know how to tell my wife. Would you pray for me? I emailed him back and said, um, yeah, I will, but uh, uh, I said, have you considered maybe doing something that I'd like you to do? <laughs> you know, option three. And he emailed me back and said, no, leave me alone. I've told you God put it on my heart to go to seminary, and that's what I want to do. Now, my response to him in part is, if God's put it on your heart, then God's going to provide a way. But I want to tell you something. People can take this, and they can sometimes take it way too far. Because people say, Whoa. People can say in one breath, I'm going to rely upon the Lord to take care of me and use that as an excuse to do absolutely nothing. That's called quietism. If we had another theological term, de jure. You just be quiet and still and let. Is this still working? It's an old song by uh, back in the early Christian contemporary music days. I'm sitting in the back seat and leaving all the driving to the chief. Um, that's not necessarily theologically correct either. Okay. Ezra did not say, God's going to provide, and this is God's trip, so I'm going to sit here on the ground and wait till he sends the magic carpet to take me, or until he goes, poof, and voila, I appear in Jerusalem. Ezra recognized it was a journey Ezra needed to take. Ezra recognized that Ezra needed provisions for the journey. But Ezra also recognized that it was God's trip and his safety and the ultimate success was in the hands of the Lord. 
And that's where we're called to be as His people, as God's people. We are called not to, to, to find our own way in life. We're called to find God's way in our life. But in the process of that, we're called to do so with faith that God is making the way straight. Acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways and He will make your paths straight. He will make you lie down in green pastures. About the Bible, it is God and that you're there. I don't know what you've got going on in your life. I don't know if you're job hunting. I don't know if you're, you're, you're looking to, for some help in your family. You're looking for some help in your finances. You're looking for some help in uh, your relationships. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what needs. We've got so many needs. We've got more needs than we have people in here. But I am confident of this, that if you stop and you lay those needs before the Lord and you seek His direction in your life, that He will provide all of your needs and you will arrive safely and you will do the things He's put before you to do. And that's all that's worth doing anyway. Next week we're going to finish getting uh, uh, Ezra through Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm not going to do a lot of the background work I did today. Um, uh, the Nehemiah story is a phenomenal story of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And then, my friends, we're going to be at a position to come back and uh, fill in some of the timeline. And we'll look at Esther and Job and the Psalms and, and the prophets, and uh, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to teach this class and to, to be a part of it with everybody in here. I thank you for the wonderful leadership we've got in this class with Lewis and Howard and countless other people and all that they do, uh, uh, all of the work that Danny and, and the Rigsby and Carol and everybody does with the, the, the groups, Lord, that, that meet together. And I ask that you help consolidate us as a class, that, that our hearts will be knit together. Uh, Lord, finally, I do pray that you'll take these lessons and renew our minds, uh, create in us a, a desire and a thirst to know more about your word to not just see it as something that's been uh, handed down to us to, to choke us, but rather as something that's, that's alive with mystery and, and wonderment and, and so many nuggets for us to, to mine and, and to, to, to glean and to use and to, to behold in amazement. Uh, thank you for your love. Uh, please move in our hearts in faith, in our lives. In Jesus we pray, amen.